Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Daniel Opong. Daniel is the founder of the Courage Collective, a diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, consulting and training company founded in 2020. Daniel has multiple founder credits to his name, a journey that I can assure you requires plenty of courage in and of itself. So hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Really glad to be here. Now, I shared just the tiniest bit of information about what you do and and what your background is in my intro, but what else do you think it's valuable for people to know about you before we get into the meat of today's conversation? Sure. Well, first of all, I'm really thankful to have this opportunity to connect with you and your audience. Um, What I'd love for people to know, I think I took a pretty untraditional path to the role that I'm in now. And you know, I think life isn't always linear. And so for me, you know, I took a pretty untraditional path, started in the nonprofit space, uh, went and got a master's at Gonzaga in organizational leadership, uh, moved to Nashville in 2015, where I worked in venture capital for a few years, which was hilarious because I'd never even heard of venture capital before I moved there. So I'm not sure how I was well suited for that position, but worked on the people side, um, people ops and culture work. I was head of people at the organization, and then I had a brief stint in tech. And so, you know, I think for me, when I when I think about just life in general, not a linear path, but mm-hmm. thankful to be doing the meaningful work that I'm doing now. Absolutely. And and we've only talked for, you know, not even two minutes, but I imagine people listening in are already picking up on the fact that you're a very energetic person. I mean, that comes through in the sound of your voice. And it's actually where you and I initially started. Mm-hmm. When we previously spoke, uh, you had shared with me that you were fresh off of a really high energy, positive meeting. And you and I had a high energy, positive conversation. Yeah. And we all have so many virtual conversations now that in that moment, I appreciated the fact that you took time to notice and appreciated even the energy from these virtual interactions. Right. I would love for you to talk for a minute about how you think positive and negative energy affect you and your work. Yeah, it's a really good question. We're, we're doing a, a training here later this week around employee engagement. And and what we've been talking about high level is in part the amount of energy we spend doing work, right? And so uh, there's some research from 2010 that said we spend 90,000 hours of our lives at work. And then if you look at the COVID pandemic, that increased by 20%, even as much as 40% in some countries. A woman named Annie Dillard said, how we spend our days is how we spend our life. Right. And so when I think about the energy and, and positive energy in general, I'm like, when I think about how I'm spending my days, uh, my life, I, I want to do things that give me energy. Right. And I think about energy being perhaps the most valuable currency. Right. Because if you do things, you give your energy to things that actually give you energy back. 
is kind of a renewable resource, right? And so for me, I think about, I want to give my energy to things that are meaningful, that are substantive, that also give me energy. And then I think the inverse would be things that siphon your energy. You can't yes. really get it back. And so, yeah, I think for me personally, it's important to put my energy into things that give me energy. And part of that is environments, people, culture, but then also things that help me recharge. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty important piece for me personally. Well, then let's start by talking about how you spend your day and, and therefore your life. I had mentioned that you specializing specialize in providing DEI consulting and training. What are the sorts of needs that you're seeing in that area from today's business leaders and organizations? Yeah, I think the main thing I would start with is the needs have changed and evolved since we got into this work. And so if we look at the overall story arc of DEI, it's not new, right? But I think we really had a cultural flashpoint in 2020 where a lot of organizations were leaning into the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion for various reasons, right? Some pretty reactive, some yeah. just trying to be on the right side of, of history, some just want not wanting to say the wrong thing or you know, be perceived positively in the public light. And so I think we had this major flashpoint in 2020 and then if you look at the way that the trends have progressed, there seems to be a growing, what I would say, apathy or disengagement around equity and inclusion topics until something terrible, unfortunately, yeah. happens in the world that makes people re-engage. So if you think about even recently, um, the tragic shooting at, at Club Q and, and then the way that companies are like, okay, well, how do we now reactively get in the game? And so it seems like we're in a time where, you know, there's the reactive engagement around DE&I work. But I think the part that I value and appreciate perhaps more than that are the companies who not only engaged in 2020, but have kept that same energy as they've mm. progressed. And so what that looks like is they're thinking about the work holistically. They're not just looking at, um, you know, acute reactionary solutions, but they're thinking about how can I actually drive impact and create a culture of belonging here? And then how are we measuring that, right? So when I think about the companies that we work with, those are the questions they're asking. How do we do this sustainably? How do we create cultural belonging? How do we drive meaningful and measurable outcomes within this work? And that feels like it aligns well with, with the um, work we deliver. Well, and one of the things that, you know, as I think about how you're sort of characterizing a couple of these different responses that companies have, right? You have the companies that are like, oh my gosh, I got to get out there and make sure everybody, you know, knows that I feel the right way about this. But then there's the companies for whom their culture is so steeped with the values that tend to accompany a DEI program that mm -hmm. ironically, they may be quieter. There's almost mm -hmm. less evidence of the work that they're doing, but the fact that they're able to consistently maintain those values as part of their culture long-term is sort of evidence in and of itself. Does that, does that idea about sort of long-term commitment being quieter versus maybe some of the flashier short-term responses. Is that how it actually plays out? Great observation. I think you're spot on. So what I would say to that is we appreciate and probably value more of an inside-out approach. One of the things that we saw in 2020 was just this really manic, reactionary, external I need to position myself this way from organizations, but that's actually not the same as 
the substance and, and the work required to drive meaningful change. And so what we found now, you know, with some of the clients that we work with, the people that are still in the game, maybe they haven't done all the external flashy brand campaigns and mm-hmm. commercials that we saw in 2020, but their people do feel a sense of belonging or they're, they're increasing employee engagement. They have meaningful ways to measure uh, equity and inclusion within their organization, right? And so for me, that's so much more substantive than, you know, the people who just put out a commercial in 2020 and haven't done anything yeah. meaningful since. There's really interesting data that talks about some of these brands that pledge, you know, billions of dollars actually have fewer folks from marginalized identities in their organization, right? So the, the outside, you know, does the con- do the contents match the or, yeah, do the contents match the packaging? Is what's on the inside aligned with what these companies are espousing? I think that's one of the key questions we need to consider. No, I think so too. And that's actually something that that comes up in a lot of conversations that I have with people in different roles sort of in and around diversity. And and I'll always bring this up because I'm not even in a position to necessarily you know make these sorts of outward statements, but it still keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. I worry about these companies that have made very bold, loud statements, but based on numbers. I mean, being in procurement, the fact of the matter is numbers don't lie. And Mm -hmm. especially if you're publicly traded, guess what? It's not like you can hide or conceal whether or not this happened. Um, As a trainer, I actually have had numerous opportunities recently to talk to people in very different sorts of situations about their perspective on listening. Mm -hmm. This is something that is so important to me because I'm always very focused on how our ability to communicate in multiple channels affects our ability to get things done. And I think listening gets left out Mm -hmm. as a communication skill or strength. And so I'd be interested, and obviously you don't need to name anybody or call anybody out, but just generally, I would love to know your impression as you go into train and have these consultative conversations, are we as a professional class doing a good job listening? Are we doing a good job hearing? Are there things that we can improve in that area that would not only benefit our company's work towards diversity, but would actually improve pretty much all of our human connections, professional and not? Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting point you bring up because when I think about listening and and I maybe juxtapose that against the work that we do, it it plays a pretty central role. So whenever we go into any organization, we do a listening and discovery phase. And one of the observations I've had when I look at organizations is, you know, we think about surveys and the way in, in which companies will ask employees how they're feeling or what they're experiencing. And one of the biggest misses from a listening perspective is companies never close the loop, right? So they'll ask employees, hey, how do you feel or what's going on or what's going well? What are the challenges, et cetera? But number one, they never tell the employees what they heard, right? So they never give a summary of the data that they that they gathered. And number two, they they rarely close the loop and say, hey, here's the action we're taking in response to what we heard. And so when I think about listening, it's not just a passive thing. I, I think listening to understand first and foremost, but then if your listening isn't informing meaningful action, then it's actually eroding trust within your organization, right? So you ask your employees, hey, what what can we do to support you? And then you don't respond. That doesn't actually build trust. And so for me, I think listening is a fundamental step. But I think where the ball often gets dropped is we listen, but we don't do it actively enough. 
in a way that facilitates meaningful change. And so then employees are like, well, I'm not going to take the next employee engagement or inclusion and belonging survey because you still haven't responded to the first one that I took. (laughs) And so that's that's essentially what we're trying to help companies think through is, yeah, listening is the first step. If you're not willing to do that, then that in and of itself is a problem. But once you gather the insights, how are you meaningfully responding? Yeah, no, I think that's such a great thing. I love this idea of of closing the loop. Like, how did people vote? And therefore, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. I'm guilty as charged. If I know that survey data is not going to be used or looked at, nobody cares about it, I'm not filling it out. Yeah, 100%. Right? Yeah, because if I'm not doing it for me, I know how I feel about whatever this situation happens to be. And it can any, be, be anything from a, a hotel stay to an employment situation. Right. If you if you know like I might as well just open my window and throw this survey out and it's going to lay in my front yard it's going to get equal right. visibility then if right. I actually fill out this form I I agree with you that that is a missed opportunity for companies and yet a relatively you know things considered a relatively straightforward thing even if you were to just take the step of publishing the results that's right and allowing right. for discussion right mm-hmm. and maybe you say listen we here's what you told us we're not sure the solution or the next step. Right. Let's figure it out together. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like it would signal a weakness to people. That actually seems to me like it would signal we're going to figure this out as a as a community, as you know how we want to handle this as a group. There's going to be an opportunity for all voices to be heard. Right. Um, you know, whether it's a fear of saying the wrong thing or saying something when nothing should be said. I mean, that certainly doesn't help us either. Yeah, I think sometimes companies are immobilized because of this idea of perfectionism or they feel like maybe they have to have all the answers before they take action. And I I think that's a big misnomer. Part of it is like once you listen, articulating to your point, articulating that we heard you and like maybe let's come up with a collaborative solution. And for the employer, they can say, here are the resources that we're willing to invest in these things. Right. And so I think that could be a starting point. Just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you can't or shouldn't do anything. And so that is how I would reframe it. Like there's meaningful action that can be taken. Some are going to be some quicker wins, but then maybe some are longer term, right? And so whenever we think about strategy, even in response to listening and discovery, we're like, okay, what can you do this quarter and next quarter to demonstrate that you heard your employees and that you're driving towards change? And then also what can you do over the course of one to three years? And so anytime we work with an organization, we are looking at both the immediate action that can be taken, but then the long-term sustainable change that's going to be more substantive and probably take a little bit more time, but will feel meaningful. So our strategy work is usually designed around that idea. Yeah. Let's take that idea of figuring out what short-term gains you can make and apply it to sort of a specific business case within the broader DEI idea. There are a lot of people within this listening audience that are in sourcing, in procurement. Some may actually be dedicated supplier diversity managers. Others may just have it as part of their scope of responsibility or or part of their performance objectives. When people want to make this meaningful but incremental progress in an area like supplier diversity, what do you think would be an example of something that would qualify as a meaningful difference? 
Sure. I think first and foremost, it would start with like, where are you at today? So an evaluation on who are the suppliers that you're working with? What are the channels through which you're sourcing suppliers? I think even practically, like what are the barriers that exist for certain suppliers to become part of your ecosystem and network, right? I think sometimes we have this idea that, okay, well, we looked at a few different suppliers and they couldn't access or or we, we didn't decided not to work with them. So we've done our due diligence. I'm like, no, I mean, are we creating access and and considering what barriers might be in place for certain people to engage or or submit uh, for the RFP that we put out? And so what I'm what I'm advocating for more broadly is number one, looking at specifically what are the systems that are in place right now? Who are the suppliers that you're working with to date? What are the gaps? And then what are the meaningful impact opportunities through which you can bring other suppliers in? I think about things like, I mean, we can go the talent acquisition route. That's one where, you know, supplier diversity is a focal point sometimes. Uh, But I think there are a lot of other ways to consider that within organizations, different vendor partnerships, et cetera, to just explore and think about, Mm -hmm. okay, how can we make sure that we are creating points of access and diversifying our supplier base? Now, we talked early on about the different approaches that companies, and I even think individuals fall into this, you know, there's sort of the loud reactionary folks, and then there's the more quiet, long-term, you know, winning the the long race kind of folks. You've probably encountered both groups and every single point in between as you've gotten this business started. I'm interested in hearing a little bit about how you vet potential clients to decide who you want to work with uh, because there's only so much time, right? What are the factors that go into you making the decision of where you're going to build those relationships? Sure. Yeah. So I'll go back to the comment I made earlier around the idea of like how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And I think about that particularly in the context of who are the partners that we're going to work with. I think we're in an interesting position where there seems to be some level of um, engagement, or at least from 2020 on, there's some level of engagement around DEI. And so for us as an organization at the Courage Collective, one of the main things that we had to consider was which organizations align with our values, right? Mm-hmm. Like from a values alignment perspective, are we considering this work in a similar light? And part of the reason that's important is because if we aren't, right, so if someone is just looking for more of a check-the-box initiative, then we're not going to measure success the same way. Right. So my organization would be responsible for delivering a metric of success that actually doesn't align with how we evaluate success. So, for example, doing an unconscious bias training, to me, I would not consider success. And if that's what an organization approaches us for only in and of itself, like a one and done, I don't think that's successful because I don't think one and dones drive meaningful impact, change and transformation. And so if and when organizations approach us and they have a pretty short-sighted view on organizations, I'm like, hey, I understand where you're coming from. This is how we think about and approach the work. And we honestly may not be best suited for this partnership if you're just looking for something that is a short-term you know, reactionary thing. If you're looking for meaningful impact and and more substantial change, that's interesting to us. And so typically where I start is at the level of values alignment. And then I think the other thing that I would say is uh, resources follow values and priorities. So there are a number of organizations who will espouse that they value X, Y, and Z, but don't put commensurate resources behind it. 
and specifically within DEI. I mean, if you think about the things that organizations invest in, when they truly care about their go-to-market strategy or customer acquisition strategy or new brand campaign, there are real dollars that go into supporting those initiatives. Both in DEI, often there's a pretty meager budget that's allocated to some of these initiatives. And so my thing is your your resources will follow your values and priorities. And so if DEI is a priority, number one, Hopefully you don't have a short-sighted view, but the number two, how are you allocating resources in order to do it? And so that's the way that I think about it and the companies that we've worked with that we really enjoy. And to be clear, I mean, we've de- we've worked with Fortune 500s all the way down to 10-person startups. For us, it's yeah. less about, you know, do you have millions of dollars to spend, but are we aligned at a values level? Are we driving towards meaningful change? And are we in it for the long haul, right? Those are the things that I consider probably more important than the size of a check that an organization can write. And I think, you know, what's interesting is as much as it certainly directly applies to the heart of the kind of work that you're doing, I actually think those insights extend far beyond to, you know, lots of different kinds of relationships, but even different buyer-supplier relationships. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be trying to deal with matters of humanity in order for values alignment to be critical, right? right? Because the way you go about, as you had said, measuring success, as you go about figuring out the way to solve whatever problem or meet whatever need, I actually think that's a really fantastic thing to call out. It's something that I hope anybody listening in who's in procurement will jot down wherever you jot your thoughts down. Give that some more thought because I think this idea of values alignment, particularly in today's economy, Right. Where you partner, where you're looking to achieve agility or, or resilience, that man, that values thing it is right there. It may not be exactly in the contract, but yep. if it's not there in letter, it has to be there in spirit for both parties to be successful. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's the concept of starting with your why and so making yeah. sure that we do align on why we're doing this in the first place. Because again, I think um there are a lot of uh, partners that you can find and work with, but if your why isn't aligned and then the environment in which you're trying to achieve said why isn't congruent, it's just going to be really, really difficult to actually go towards meaningful success. And I think specifically from the supplier side, I mean, and I think about any like interview or vetting type of process it isn't inherently a personality contest, right? It's not right. just pick the person that you like. What are be. the co- Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? So what are the core objective yeah. things that this uh, brand is going to deliver? What do they say they're about? And how have they demonstrated what they're about? And does that resonate with you, right? So that's the thing that I come back to. And I think from my end, you know, um, talking to a lot of different employers who give varying degrees of investment mm-hmm. into DEI. Yeah, I just want to make sure and, and it, like you said it's not just uh specific to DEI, it's ubiquitous across any decision that um supplier diversity or supplier managers would make is are we aligned in why we're doing this? Are we on the same page about why this matters? Yeah, there's a lot that we can explore and expand on, but I think that core fundamental has to be connected in order to really see progress and meaningful success. Now, Daniel, as we start to wrap up our time together, I want to bring you into what has become a tradition or hazing ritual, however you want to look at it, here <laughs> at The Sourcing Hero. 
every single guest that joins me gets the option of answering one of two questions, and the choice is entirely up to yours. Okay. Up to you. So the choice is between what does the idea of a sourcing hero mean to you, or how would you define what heroism looks like in a business context? Ooh, interesting questions. I think I'm going to take the second one. How would I define what heroism looks like in a business context? And what I would say is it looks like radical congruence. And what I mean by that is you're the same on the inside as you are on the outside. Mm -hmm. And you don't just espouse these ideas, but you actually live and breathe them. And I think it's really interesting. Like, you know, I think about business leaders specifically, you know, I want to I want to ask that question. It's more of an invitation. Like, what are you espousing and are your practices actually aligning with that? I think that takes a lot of courage. Right. And it takes courage to say, like, this is what we value and believe. And that's going to inform our decision making process. For me, I mean, it's meant the difference between customers we work with and customers or clients we work with and clients we don't, which is revenue. Right. And so I think about like, am I willing to live into my values and and be radically congruent, even if it means I'm passing on these meaningful revenue opportunities? And for me, like, yeah, I would rather live into that. So when I think about this idea of of heroism in the workplace, I think it is that that I that idea of congruence, being the same on the inside as you are on the outside, and and letting your internal compass or your values guide and drive your decisions. Which 100% requires courage. I, I think there's yep. there's no other way to look at it. So you're absolutely right there. Now, Daniel, if people have listened in to this conversation, they want to learn more about you, about your work, about the Courage Collective, what is the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, so you can go to our website, thecouragecollective.co, and you can read about the work that we do. Quick brief, we do consulting and training. Consulting is usually strategic, and so we're doing listening and discovery like we mentioned, uh, and then we'll go into strategy development and then some intentional action. Uh, and then as far as learning and development goes, we have a collection of different um, L&D offerings. One thing I'll say is I don't think L&D standalone um, is the answer. I think it has to be holistic, right? Yeah. Strategic, holistic, and human-centered. And so that's what I would say. But yeah, I would say go to our website. That's one way. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and just search the Courage Collective. Those are probably the two primary ways that people can get in touch with us. Thank you so much for being with me today, Daniel. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero Podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for the Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.